0: Welcome to Jat Chat, presented by the Journal of Athletic Training, the official journal of the National Athletic Trainers Association. My name is Dr. Kara Radzak. I'm Assistant Professor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. The purpose of today's event is to provide an open forum for athletic trainers and other healthcare professionals to ask questions on the recently published sports medicine delivery models, legal risks, which is available currently online from the Journal of Athletic Training. Today I'm joined by the co-authors, Dr. Jeff, uh, Dr. Christopher Ingersoll and Professor Jeffrey Rapp. Chris Ingersoll is the founding dean for the College of Health Professions and Sciences at the University of Central Florida. Dr. Ingersoll served as editor in chief for two different journals, our own, the Journal of Athletic Training and the Journal of Sports Rehabilitation, and served as the president of the National Athletic Trainers Association Research and Grants, Research and Education Foundation. He was the recipient of the NATA Research and Education Foundation, William G. Clancy Medal for Distinguished Athletic Training Research in 2005, and the NATA Sayers Bud Miller Distinguished Educator Award in 2009. He was introdu- introduced into the NATA Hall of Fame uh, last year in 2019 and has been elected a fellow on um, the American College of Sports Medicine, the National Athletic Trainers Association, and the Association of Schools of advancing health professions. I'm also joined today by Jeffrey Rapp, who is at the University of Toledo College of Law starting in 2004. He holds the Harold A. Anderson Professor of Law and Values and Associate Dean for Academic Affairs at the University of Toledo. He teaches and writes in the areas of corporate law, torts, and sports industry. His recent publications include a teaching textbook on tort law and articles published in the North Carolina Law Review, Washington University Law Review, Georgia Law Review, Washington and Lee Law Review, BYU Law Review, and Boston University Law Review. He's a graduate from Harvard College and Law and Yale Law. And while in law school, he served as the notes editor of the Yale Law Journal and is a teaching fellow and head teaching fellow for the departments of economics and computer sciences. At this point of time, I would just like to remind you to, in order to make JAT chat chat work as smoothly as possible, we ask that you submit your questions in the Facebook live comment section or as a tweet at. J A T underscore N A T A using the hashtag, hashtag Jack Chat all one word. At this point of time, I would like to introduce Dr. Inglesall and Professor Rapp. Thank you very much for both joining me today.
1: Thank you for having us.
0: So, this is a very different conversation than we're going to be having um, typically. And It really speaks to the wide variety of issues that athletic trainers are facing. And one of the first things that I would like you guys to do, if possible, is to provide a little bit of a brief overview on the three different models that were evaluated in this sports medicine delivery model evaluation.
1: Sure. We look at um, three models, um, and I'll describe the models in terms of the reporting structure for the head athletic trainer with the assumption that the assistant athletic trainers would report to the head athletic trainer and the budget. And so the first is the athletics model, and that's where the head athletic trainer reports to the athletics director, um, and the budget resides in uh, the athletics department. This is the most common model uh, Mm -hmm. that's out there right now. The academic model is one where the head athletic trainer is in an academic unit and reports to either a chairperson or a dean, um, and then the budget would be in that academic unit. Uh, and the medical model is uh, uh, where the head athletic trainer reports to another medical professional. So it could be a team physician, and that supervising clinician reports to another clinician or a healthcare administrator, and the budget sits in that medical unit. So, this model may exist in the university's health system mm-hmm. or in student health as examples. Um, hybrids do exist. Uh, for example, the uh, head athletic trainer may report to the team physician in student health, but the budget might sit in athletics. So, there are all different variations of that. Uh, for the purposes of our review, we kind of looked at those models in the purest form, and so you would have to. Uh, you know, looking at every permutation wasn't really, really possible. I think the the, the major finding, um, and we'll get into that as we we go further, is that the medical model presented the lowest legal risk. The academic model is in the middle, and the athletics mm-hmm. model represents the greatest risk uh, legally to an institution.
0: Great, thank you. So, mm-hmm. what was the impetus for this um, this review and evaluation of the legal models?
1: Well, I think it, it started with a, a conversation of some of the things that were happening nationally and were in the national news about um, athletic trainers or other healthcare professionals being pressured to make decisions mm-hmm. um, on, on uh, student athletes uh, that felt like undue. People were, were interfering with that. And so um, the, the conversation about, you know, how would an uh, institution move forward, for example, changing to a medical model, um, how would they, you know, present that information? And certainly there's uh there's a, a plethora of literature about job satisfaction and um, uh, you know, staffing concerns. and even now there's some information coming about clinical outcomes, um, and so forth. Um, one that is obviously an important one to senior administrators is legal risk. And so there wasn't anything available uh, to present that. So, um, I had a conversation with, uh, with uh, Professor Rapp, who's an expert in that area, and we, yeah, we, we did that analysis.
0: <clears throat> Great. And Professor Rapp, can you give us a little bit of background of what you're looking for when you're evaluating the legal risk?
2: Sure. So, so one of the models that we found helpful uh, breaks down types of legal risk uh, into four categories, uh, litigation risk contract risk, uh, regulatory risk, and, and a structural risk. Um, so litigation risk has to do with the risk that an institution will be sued uh, and will have to pay lawyers to defend the lawsuit. Mm-hmm. Uh, has to do with the risk that they will lose the lawsuit uh, or be compelled to settle it and have to pay something to a plaintiff in the lawsuit uh, who's been successful either at, at, at winning a jury verdict or, or at obtaining a settlement. Uh, contractual risk. Uh, primarily looks at whether it becomes harder for an institution to hold its contractual counterparties to the terms of the contract. So does this make it more likely that people on the other side of contracts from an organization, in this case a university, would break their contractual obligations to university? Uh, But as we thought about a contract risk also involved the cost of contracting. So does it become more expensive in the future as a result of a particular choice for a university or an organization to enter into particular kinds of contracts. Uh, regulatory risk has to do with the chances that a particular approach uh, to an activity triggers increased scrutiny from regulators. Uh, so in most industries, we, we think about that primarily involving state or federal uh, governmental agencies. Uh, but in the case of, of colleges, we have not only some of those external governmental regulators for some colleges and universities, uh, we also have the NCAA or other athletics Organizations like conferences that may change the rules applicable to those universities because of things that happen. And then a structural risk would be a risk where uh, the basic model of the organization uh, is called into question because of legal concerns. So if we have a gambling business and gambling becomes illegal, uh, anything that would trigger that kind of a structural change uh, would be something we'd put in that last category.
0: Thank you for that overview. And you you guys found that the medical model had the lowest risk in all four of those categories. And one of the questions that we're getting from the audience is, what do you perceive as the primary barrier to switch away from the athletics model? And what are some barriers to the medical model?
1: Well, I guess I can take a stab at that and let Professor Rapp jump in. But I think an important thing to remember if you're interested in moving to the to the medical model that any changes to the model that you currently have is an executive decision mm-hmm. that's typically made by the president of the university. And this is because the sports medicine program will typically be moved from one vice presidential area to another. And so... Um, Therefore, uh, the president and the president's cabinet need to be aware of the relevant issues. So items like legal risk of each model, job satisfaction, and work-life balance of the clinicians, and clinical outcomes, external pressure on medical decision-making, clinical pay, clinical staffing levels, all those type of things um, should be be considered. I think it's helpful to summarize uh, all of these findings into a one-page information sheet referencing supporting literature like case law or research papers or media reports and make that available to individuals the amount of information and the and the various risks not just legal ones in terms of changing it from one area to the other is a, is a complex decision and so the more information you can provide and the more uh, uh, clearly and concisely you can provide it is uh, is is the best idea now I've shared a, a one pager that I've prepared and it, it might be a little bit out of date, but it gives you an idea of how to consolidate all that information and share it with uh, individuals um, who are there. And so, you know, you may keep in mind that, so the, the president's cabinet um, and the, uh, there may be members who have an interest in this, like general counsel may be mm-hmm. concerned uh, about the risk, especially now that, it, you know, we've delineated it in this paper. The athletics director, vice president for student affairs or clinical affairs, Uh, or others who may have access to the president should be pulled into the loop, like deans, donors, community leaders, and so forth. But but I I guess the moral of the story is, A, it needs to be focused towards the best interests of the student-athletes. And you need to keep in mind that the university president is most likely the decision maker.
0: Great. Thank you. So another question that we have from the audience is what are the key characteristics that make a school situation consistent with the medical model? So what are the defining factors of being in the medical model? What does the administration structure look like?
1: Yeah. Well, the, the, the clinicians will report up through uh, a health system. So Mm -hmm. whether it's your, your hospital or student health or whatever, and the budget sits there. Um, that's the, the pure version of the, the medical model. So, um, the, the clinicians are evaluated by a healthcare administrator or another clinician and not, uh, someone in the, in the athletics department, that would be the clear delineation in the medical model.
0: So if there's any performance reviews or annual reviews, they're being done by another medical professional, not somebody within athletics. Correct. And what does that change for the day-to-day for an athletic trainer?
1: Well, (laughs) I think that's going to depend on the the institution. But, Mm -hmm. you know, the literature um, identifies, you know, as some of the advantages of the medical model is, A, pay tends to go up when they go in the medical model for the practitioners. Um, They feel most supported by the administration Mm -hmm. uh, in that model. They work the fewest unnecessary hours um, they understand their role and their, uh, their uh, uh, expectations. Their work balance life is better. Um, and they develop uh, more collegial relationships because they're, they're, you know, as part of a larger healthcare system.
0: <clears throat> so another question that we're getting is, does the type of model adopted influence the role of non-healthcare professionals? In the medical decision-making process,
1: Jeff, you want to take a stab at that one?
0: <laughs> Are there any? And cases? I'm, I'm glad to,
1: too, but I, I think your perspective would be very interesting.
2: Yeah. Well, that, that's one of the Jeff. We're
0: not he- Jeffrey. We're not hearing you. I think we lost you.
2: Um, angles we use to. Okay.
0: Okay. You're back. How about now? Can you you start from the beginning? Yes. Thank you.
2: (laughs) Sure. My internet connection is unstable according to the (laughs) the blurb that I'm getting. Um, so what I was saying was that, uh, one of the lines of thinking we went through was who else might influence Mm -hmm. the decisions that an AT makes, uh, from a non-medical, non-patient care perspective. And that's one of the reasons why we think the medical model offers uh, the lowest litigation risk in particular. And that's that the AT isn't thinking about budgets, performance reviews, being done by someone who has something else in their mind, like winning a game, uh, beating a rival, getting to a conference championship.
0: And that's one of the things that if any of our viewers have not read, this is a great quick read that you guys go into depth about explaining the thought and the theory behind all of this. And um, another thing that we're having a question on is do regulatory bodies such as the NCAA have a role in model selection or advocating for specific models in athletic healthcare?
1: Well, I think the, the, a quick answer relative to that is they provide some guidance mm-hmm. in terms of that, and they have the appropriate medical care document that is available. And presumably institutions are uh, following uh, that guidance in terms of, of uh, appropriate medical care. Um, you know, the NCA's process is such that, um, you know, any violation of those types of things are self-reported by the institution. And so um you know, that that's inherent in the model that they have relative to that. So it's effective to the extent that that model works.
0: So a question that we're having is how do athletic trainers who are not in an administrative role potentially influence the model adoption at their institution?
1: <clears throat> well, I, I'll, i uh... Go back to what I had mentioned earlier that it's important to understand who the final decision maker is, mm-hmm. and so, you know, the the relationship that um, an athletic trainer might have within their institution is going to be different from person to person. And so, someone who's been there for thirty years may have uh, relationships at all levels within the institution, and it might be much easier to initiate a conversation uh, in that regard. Um, you know, uh, someone who who isn't. May have more difficulty, so I think they need to think strategically about how they would um, get information to, um, you know, a president or president's cabinet member. Mm -hmm. Um, I think naturally someone might be concerned uh, about um, expressing concern of the model that they're in and what the consequence might be for them. And and I think you know someone has to be careful about that, uh, not knowing. Although I wouldn't make an assumption. Um, I think there are, for example. Um, athletics directors uh, that are currently in an athletics sports medicine delivery model that would love to move that risk out of their portfolio um, and uh, would would welcome a proposal in terms of how to manage that. Um, Others, and, and, and of course, change is difficult just as a matter of change, right? If it's been a model for a long time and people are used to that, Um, you're going to be fighting all the battles of institutional change um, and you have to navigate the political waters. And those are going to be different from institution to institution.
0: Are there any specific legal arguments or information that can be used to provide administrative um, decision makers with options or um, more information to influence their choice? Can you repeat the first part of the question? Yeah. I'm not sure. Um, the question is asking for specific legal arguments or legal information, probably case cases that can be provided to administrators to help influence choice.
2: Right. So I, I think the, the most important thing is to understand that athletic trainers are subject to uh, review as professionals, as medical professionals. Um, so that requires that their decision-making Uh, be more than just ordinarily reasonable, but that it meet professional standards. And the the danger there then is anytime someone who isn't from that profession, who doesn't have medical care, medical care background, is influencing those decisions, the decisions may not meet the medical care expectations.
0: Is there a legal risk to an individual clinician but not the organization that athletic trainers should be aware of if they are participating in a non-medical model?
2: Uh, well, you know speaking in, in very general terms because I, I can't give uh, legal advice to your listeners. Um, you know the, the fact that an organization might be held responsible doesn't always protect the individual who has engaged in uh, the culpable conduct. So if uh, an athletic trainer fails to meet the standard of care, uh, that trainer might very well be held liable uh, in addition to the university facing a legal risk. So the the safest approach, I think, is uh, always bear your training uh, and your professional uh, expectations in mind and and apply patient care as your your first decision-making criteria.
0: Are there any other things that an athletic trainer as an individual can do to decrease their legal risks specifically within the athletics model?
2: Well, you know, I think it's generally true that it helps to get in in writing. If, if you're being advised to do anything that makes you uncomfortable, mm-hmm. um, that supervisory or other powerful employee that's directing you, should be asked to write it down so that you've got a record that may not provide adequate protection, right? If you're, if you're engaging in, in conduct, you know, doesn't meet your professional standards. The fact that someone told you to do it is not necessarily going to protect you, but it does help um, if, if you've got some clear direction. And then the other thing to bear in mind is that um, is, I I guess to ask the question, is this my lawyer? When you're talking to a lawyer or a risk management person, uh, risk management professional, uh, the person may represent, The institution but Mm -hmm. not be representing the individual employee. So so got to bear in mind that that their in their advice uh, Is advice meant to protect the institution and not necessarily
0: the individual? Thank you So we have a question that I'm guessing is specific to California in states without licensure Is there anything that changes relative to risks or protections associated with each model?
1: well the I, I would assume that someone who is boc certified mm-hmm. would continue to have a, a, an ethical responsibility to certain uh st- standard of practice even though there's not uh you know state regulation in that state um if you're not uh, a boc certified athletic trainer and you're practicing in california then um i have no advice for you other than Maybe you shouldn't do that, but um, <laughs> I don't think that's a legal opinion, is it, Jeff?
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's a professional standard. <laughs>
2: yeah. So, licensure is, is uh, obviously a factor that courts look at in deciding whether or not to apply a professional negligence standard to the to the conduct of a person in a particular occupation. It's mm-hmm. not the only factor um so spe- specialized training uh community of self regulation uh can lead to a finding even in a state where there there's no clear licensure regime that a particular category of occupation falls into the professional category
0: Thank you both um Another question that we have are any good examples of schools that have successfully adopted the medical model and specifically for Division I athletics? I'm
1: I'm going to decline to answer that. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, there certainly are institutions at various levels who have made that. But to say that they've successfully made that would require information that I don't have available to me right right now. But, but institutions have, um, at all levels have certainly uh, been successful in making that, uh, making that transition.
0: So let me, um, let me spin off of that question a little bit and ask in, in your minds, what would be markers for success of transitioning?
1: Mine's kind of simple. I, I think that, um, it puts that athletic trainer in a position where they can practice athletic training um, and they can be uh, supervised in a way where their performance as an athletic trainer is the, is the, the primary, uh, the primary key for them. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, And, and I think that, um, you know, in our profession, um, there are discussions sometimes about uh, you know, how immersed we are in the healthcare uh, uh, world um, I think we are healthcare providers, that's very clear, and we need to be, we need to operate in those boundaries. And the medical model clearly does that for us.
0: Great. From a legal standpoint, are there any markers of success for the transition?
2: Markers of su- success for the transition? I, I suppose no one ever uh, uses the organizational structure uh, of the, uh, the, the, um, athletic trainers role as the basis for asserting a claim of negligence.
0: Great. So as we're moving um, forward, just a few more questions that I would like to ask for you, from you guys. Um, are there any legal issues or considerations that you see on the horizon for the profession in general?
2: Uh, so, you know, obviously, um, I, I think the big story has been uh, in legal exposure for latent injuries caused by participation in intercollegiate athletics. So uh, traumatic brain injury, mm-hmm. uh, concussions, subconcussive concussive uh, injuries uh, are sort of the, the most widely recognized piece of this, uh, but I think there are a number of other circumstances in which we are learning more about the long-term effects of certain kinds of injuries, certain kinds of sports participation at certain levels. um, And the role that any medical provider has uh, in, in in protecting athletes from those long-term consequences is I think something we're going to, we're going to learn more about the legal treatment of in the coming years. Um, And then I think as in most other ways, college athletics will be affected by the changing regulatory environment concerning uh, pay for play athlete uh, pay for name, image, and likeness. As more money flows mm-hmm. into an industry uh, you know, pressure. Now uh, we might think of arising from a coach who has to win, uh, but athletes want to get back on the field too. And if athletes want to get back on the field for monetary reasons, not just uh, because they want to win the game and be with their teammates, that will change the kinds of conversations that medical professionals, athletic trainers are gonna to have to have with those athletes about whether or not they're ready to return to play at
0: a particular time. Thank you. And then um, Dr. Ingersoll, what would be the first step? I know you've kind of outlined some good um, steps to direct somebody from potentially changing their medical model, um, but what would be the first one, uh, take home action somebody could do today?
1: <clears throat> well, I think the educating themselves on the advantages and disadvantages of each of the models and being prepared to discuss that um, and discuss that in an objective way that's focused on the best interests of the student athlete. Um, you know, the, in the end, there's going to be, um, there, there's potentially issues of protectionism and, you know, the in issues of institutional change that have to be managed. Uh, but I think um focusing on the best interests of the student athlete is the, the the primary objective for looking to make any of these type of changes. And so if you're going to suggest a change, I think you need to be able to provide the rationale on why that change is better and who it's better for. Um, and of course, the legal risks that we talked about is a lot about uh, the institution, right? And protecting themselves uh, with, with the way things are organized. But Um, I think the underlying thing that's most important is the the, uh, uh, best interest of the student-athletes.
0: Thank you both so much for joining me today. Any final parting words or resources for our listeners?
1: Good. I think the, uh, I don't know if you need to share where that document is that I promised would be available.
0: (laughs) We'll make sure we link it, yes.
1: Okay, great. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Well, again, thank you guys both so much, and we will be sure to tweet out the document. Um, if anybody who's watching or listening has not read this, this is a really great um, short primer that has chock full of information of an overview of this situation that's probably going to be um, very pertinent and very timely. I'd like to thank you both so very, very much and remind everybody that this will be available on all of JT's social media channels and also available as a podcast. So thank you again, Dr. Inglesoll and Professor Rapp.
2: Thank My you. Pleasure.